We have a ton of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to move very, very quickly, um, and there's some important things going on here. Um, but what I pray more than anything else this morning is that by the end of today, though we are covering a lot of content um, and going over a lot of things, that what we will leave with um, is knowing that through even some very practical, structural type things that we heard the gospel this morning and that the gospel was proclaimed over us, that we received the gospel in our hearts. And, um, and even on today, uh, Pentecost Sunday, that it would be the Spirit of God that awakens and revives our heart and our affections for the things of God and for His church. Um, so let's pray and let's dive in. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for a very special day today as Pentecost Sunday as we remember when the promise of the Spirit was poured out on your disciples. God, we thank you that uh, you did not leave us alone, but you said it is better for us if you go so that the Holy Spirit could come. Uh, God, we affirm today that we believe that it is the Spirit of God that cries out inside of us with the spirit of adoption that says, Abba, Father. And we could not cry out, Daddy, if it wasn't for the promise of the Spirit that you gave to us. We thank you for that this morning. We pray that through uh, the teaching and the preaching of your word today that we would encounter the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, God, as well as in our worship as we allow theology this morning to lead us into doxology. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about eight ways, eight specific ways to love your church or eight ways to submit to your church or another way to just say that is how to be a member. But we're specifically going to deal with eight ways, um, and I'm just going to say to love your church well. Okay, um, and another way you could say that is to submit to your church, because when we talk about membership, being a member of a local church really comes down to one word, and that is submission. And it's not submission simply to um, a construct of ideas, though it's not less than that. So we are submitting ourselves first and foremost to the truth of a message of the gospel of the good news about Jesus Christ. And so we, if, if you ever hear someone argue, well, you know, creeds and confessions and that kind of thing, you know, that doesn't really matter. It absolutely matters. And so we cannot lose sight that first and foremost, we are submitting ourselves to Scripture, and through Scripture, we are submitting ourselves to a very specific message, a very specific truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's certainly not less than that, but it is more. We also are not talking strictly about submission in a, in a structural leadership flow chart of things, though again, it is that, but not less than that, it is more. And it is more than that because we are also talking about submitting ourselves to each other. So it's not just this sort of 
overarching flowchart type submission of hierarchy, but rather it is this very ground level submission of myself to you, of you to me, of you to each other, this where we are all members of one body together. So let's go to scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which I believe you have there on your paper. But if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it and read along with us, whether it glows or it has pages, that's fine. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? There would be no body, it would just be a member of the body, right? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Okay? Just use your imagination there, and you'll get what Paul's driving at. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. What Paul's trying to say here is there's no part of the body that you can really do without. Uh, God's pretty smart and uh, pretty wise. And in the creation of the human body, there was not one thing really that was not meant to be there. Now, we could argue, did we really need two kidneys? But just saying, the fact that God has given us two kidneys has in more recent years through the, the grace of God that is extended to us through the exploration of science and health and medicine has allowed a lot of lives to be saved uh, because he gave us two kidneys, which would not have been if it were not so. So you could argue, but I think there's nothing in our body that should not be there. God designed it, right? And so Paul's driving at that and helping us to understand that using the example of the human body, that there is nothing in our bodies that is not there that is somehow dispensable in the, in the sense that, not that you couldn't live without it, but if you had an opportunity to live with it instead of without it, you would every single time choose to live with it. Amen? Right. So, I mean, we know that there are people who get by in life without some of the things that are meant to be in the human body, a part of the human body. They get by. But every single time, would they, if they could, choose to have those things that they were originally intended to have, every single time they would say, 
Yes. Why? Because it was designed that way for a reason. Nothing is indispensable. So, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if anyone has stubbed their toe, they say, Amen. Right? Well, you stubbed that pinky toe. Let me tell you something. In December last year, I was playing soccer outside with my little brothers outside in my bare feet. I kicked the root of a tree as hard as I possibly could. I wasn't trying to. I was trying to kick the ball. The root got in the way. My toe still hurts. And we're, it's now almost June. It hurts, right? And so my whole body suffers as a result of that, right? There's no part of our body that when it suffers, the rest of our body doesn't care, right? So it is with the church. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then Paul goes into one of the most famous chapters of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about love. And even if you could do all these things that seem to be more honorable or more upfront or more desirable gifts... If you have not love, you have nothing. And he gets down to the end and he says, So uh, now faith, hope, and love abide in these three things, but the greatest of these is love. And so of all the things that we should possess together as members of the body, the first is love. And what is love if it is not submission to one another? Amen? Now where do we get this? Besides the Bible... One of the ways that I want you to think through this, so let me rephrase that. Not besides the Bible or in addition to the Bible, but a way of interpreting Scripture for you through the Bible is, is, is a way to look at this and say, how have we received the things that we're going to talk about today from God through Christ? Which we would only know through Scripture, right? Right? So as we come and we say, here, here are some ways to, to love your church, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is, how have we been loved by God through Christ in these ways? Because it is because we have been loved by God through Christ in these ways that we should extend that same love to each other. Okay, So I don't want you to miss that. Today, So Christ submitted his whole life for us, for our good, and to establish the church. Then, in a subsequent turn of events, he turns around and after his resurrection, he asks us then to submit to the church that he died to establish. And so this is not... We're not talking about church in a purely organizational hierarchy like, we talk, like I mentioned earlier... Um, 
It's not purely organizational or institutional, but it is to the other members of the church universally and in a general sense and specifically in a local expression of the church. And I want you to hear that, that even we as a local expression of the church, we are still called to a submission to our brothers and sisters globally, universally. We are a part of the global, universal, as it would say in the creeds, Catholic church. Not Catholic meaning Rome, but Catholic meaning universal, meaning that we are a part of the church that Jesus initiated and began that started with all those whom God had given him to believe and has extended with every believer from that point on until right now today and into the future till Jesus comes back. That is the eternal church of God. And we are called as a local expression of the church to be in submission to our brothers and sisters universally, right? Now, important to know who really are our brothers and sisters and who really aren't in that, okay? And the submission that we have with them is at one level, but then God calls us to an even deeper level of submission where we live in a local context where we are submitting in an even deeper way to our brothers and sisters that God has brought around us. Um, so as we get into this today, this is what I want you to hear. We're about, I'm about to get out a pen and paper. I'm about to list some stuff out. But this cannot be for us simply a to-do list. So if you walk away today and what you heard and saw is a to-do list, then one of two things have happened. Either you weren't really paying attention or I've done a really bad job. One of those two things, okay? So it is my deepest prayer today that we don't walk away with a to-do list. Um, one of the biggest mistakes that we could make right now in the, in the infancy of who we are as a church is to give each other a to-do list. Because what that would do in the culture of our body is it would create for us a works-based righteousness culture that we preach against every Sunday morning. But here's the problem. Culture eats values for breakfast. So we can get up and we can preach grace and we can preach the gospel and we can say it's by faith alone. But if we get our to-do list out and we say, but it's actually about these things and that's what we try to live up to in a sense functionally during the week, then that will eat everything that we're saying from the pulpit for breakfast, which will nullify the message of the gospel in this church. And we cannot allow that to happen. So what we're going to do today is not a to-do list. Uh, to do, that would make it law-based and legalism. It's a false gospel in practice and be contrary to what we're preaching. What we're going to do is we're going to list some things. This is not a prescription. It is a description. All right? So this isn't what you must now do. This is who we are and what our lives must continually become as God, by the Holy Spirit, is conforming us in the image of the Son, of His Son. These are the ways that He is going to work out submission in and through us for each other. All right? And so it has to be a work of God in and through us. Now, if we know that these are things that God has called us to, 
and there are areas of our lives that are not lining up with this, can we call each other to repentance? Absolutely. But what is that repentance a call to? Is it a call to go and do something? No, it's a call to believe in a deeper and greater level who we are and who God has called us to be. And we're going to deal with that here in just a second. All right? So I'm going to waste a lot of paper today. So here we go. All of this must stem from faith. Our faith in who God is and what he has done and what that means about who we are. And then as a result, what we must then do. A.W. Tozer said that, the, that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me ask you a question. Does theology matter? 100%. read an article uh, a couple of weeks ago from a guy named Vocab Malone who was a co-worker. He's a pastor, a bivocational pastor who was a co-worker with one of the uh, Muslim gentlemen that drove from Arizona to northern Texas and opened fire up uh, outside of uh, Dallas or wherever that was a few weeks ago. Co-worker. Had some extensive evangelistic conversations with this uh, Muslim gentleman. Great guy. Awesome guy. Good to work with. Deep thinker. Vocab Malone said that what he did absolutely lined up with his theology. Does theology matter? Yes. Why? Because what we believe and think about who God is and what he has done and what that means about us as a result absolutely fuels every decision that you make. Every decision that you make. Because you make your decisions from an internal motivation based on who you believe you are. And who God is and what he has done has something to say about who you are. And so all of our decisions stem from there. So the world says, and we've talked about this before, so it'll be a little bit of a quick review. The world says that what we do equals who we are. This, this is uh, drummed into our heads through every advertisement on TV. Um, it's, 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 the, what, it's the mantra of our culture. And so if you want to change who you are, you've got to change what you do. And this has permeated the Western church. And we've gotten into a place where we have tried to make this about the gospel. And so you've heard me say things like, it does not matter how much good you do on the outside, you cannot do enough good on the outside to get it to go inside and change your heart. That's not what happens. There has to be a change on the inside that then affects what comes as a result of that on the outside in our actions, behaviors, what Paul would call the fruit of the Christian life in the New Testament. This is what the world says. It is incorrect. That is not what we are teaching, and it's not who we are. What you do does not equal who you are. And so we've even said things like this. You are not, 
you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Right? You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. We've got it backwards. Who we are is what determines what we will do, no matter what. Okay? And so we've got to deal with who we are. Now, being a sinner is hopefully who we were in a general sense. So as believers, we now exist in what we would call an already not yet reality of being simultaneously sinner and saint, right? We are saint because through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been declared righteous eternally. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. God's wrath is no longer directed at us. We are children of God. However, in the flesh, in our day-to-day life, we still exist in the presence and sometimes power of sin in our flesh. And so we still do sin because in our flesh we are still sinners, okay? But in an ultimate sense, are we, would we still consider ourselves to be ultimately sinners? No, if we've come to faith in Christ, we are ultimately saints who exist in this dual reality, okay? So God's economy flips it. It says who you are is what determines what you do. And we know this because we are all suffering, all of us, from identity crisis. Every single one of us suffers from identity crisis all the time. And when we find ourselves um, falling in sin, it is most predominantly because of an identity crisis. We are failing to believe who we really are in Christ and what God has done for us. So it is the sin of disbelief, and the disbelief that we have has to do, is connected with our identity. And we are aligning ourselves more with Adam rather than with Christ in those moments. Okay? So this is about not... So what we're going to say today is not about proving who we are. This is not a way that you can prove that you're a member of the church. Because the reality is this. God only knows the true members of the church. The true members of the church. Because true membership in the church has nothing to do with what you have done or ever could do. It has everything to do with what God in Christ has done for you. And if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are a member of the church, whether you ever put your butt in one of these chairs, right? Yes or no? Amen. Praise God. So membership even is all of grace, it's all of faith, and it's all of God's work through Christ, okay? So the things that we're going to list out now are not a way for you to prove that you're a member because you can't do that. You can only be a member through faith in Jesus Christ. This is about how we can expect our lives to be because of who we are. And when those things don't line up, it's about reminding each other of who we really are. Okay? So as I was praying through this, and even this morning, I'm talking about remember who you are, and I'm sorry, I just had to go there. The Lion King. Right? So here's, here's Simba. He's run away from home. Why? Because he's 
disbelieving that who he is is greater than what he's done. He's disbelieving that who he is is greater than what he's done. And so he runs from home. It's a complete prodigal son type story. Rafiki comes along, and what does Rafiki do? Rafiki does what a good elder does. He knocks him over the head, right? And he says, remember who you are. And he has him look in the pond, right? And he's like, you know, look harder. Um, and, and so he looks in the pool. He says, that's not my father. It's just my reflection. Rafiki's like, no, look harder. And he touches the water, causes the waves that change Simba's reflection into the reflection of who? His father, right? And so we see Mufasa uh, from above in the clouds. And, and Rafiki says, you see, he lives in you. And Mufasa's like, Simba. Father, Simba, you have forgotten me. How? No, how could I? You have forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become, right? We, you remember this? Yeah, do you remember this? Like, this is powerful. So then he's like fully there and then he says, remember who you are. You are my son. And this is what it is. Like when we get together, we talk about these things. When we fail to believe the gospel, what are we failing to believe? We're failing to believe that we are children of God who are deeply and dearly loved in spite of what we have done. That who we are as children of God trumps what we have done. And so every single time, what does it take? A knock in the head and a reminder that who we are trumps what we have done. And when we come to that realization, what happens? Repentance, right? Why? Oh, it's not about what I've done. It's about who I am in Christ. I remember that. And as I remember that, what happens? God, thank you for reminding me of that. Thank you that all that I am and what I've done is covered under the blood of Jesus. I believe more deeply now. And what happens as a result of that? Oh, you know what? It gets a little bit easier to do the things that a son does. Why? Because when you believe that you are forgiven, you run to the Father instead of away from Him. Right? You run to Him instead of away from Him. And so Mufasa says, remember who you are. So, in order to know who we are, we first have to know who God is. What you think about God, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So first we must know, we must ask the question, who is God or who God is? We must know who God is, okay? Then we must know what God has done. So before we, can do, before we can know who we are, we have to know who God is and what he has done. This informs then who we are, right? And once we know who we are, now who we are informs what we do. So at a very basic level, who is God? God is creator, what has he done? He has created. Who are we? We are the created. And what do we do as a result? Be fruitful and multiply and dominate the earth, right? Which means what? Co-create, right? So this is a very basic way of 
working our way through that. Well, who is God? God is holy. And what has he done? He's given us his law. And who are we? We are law breakers. We have traded the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1, which means we are sinners. So what do we do? It means we need to repent. Do you follow how this works? Well, who is God? God is not only just and perfect and holy, but he is loving and he is a father. And so what has he done? He sent his son to save, which means who are we through faith in the one who saves? We are now adopted children of God. And so what do we do as children of God? We act like the children of God. This is how, what we, this is how we're supposed to get to what we do. You have decisions you need to make in your life. This is a great filter to filter them through. Well, I don't know what I should do. Well, who are you? Well, I don't know who I am. Well, who is God? And what has he done for you? And that's going to tell you who you are. And if you know who you are, now you can begin to make decisions about your life. And so this has to be the filter by which we get to everything else. And this is what I would call because, therefore, because of who God is and what he has done, therefore, I know who I am and what I must do. Which is a gospel motivation for our lives. It is not if then. If then is a law-based legal motivation. Because if then looks at what I have to do first and says, if I can just do this, then I can be this and then maybe God will let me be that. That's the law. And by works of the law shall how many people be justified? Oro, zero, none, zilch, nada, nobody. Right? So we can, even in the church, put ourselves, even though we may not go to the Old Testament and take the Old Testament and try to live out the Old Testament, we can still put ourselves under law simply by living from a legal motivation of if then instead of a gospel motivation of because therefore. Are you with me? So we had to do all that work so that we could get to these eight things. And you could hear today that this is not a to-do list, all right? And so if we get into a situation where we've got to get together and do some counseling and what comes out is like, but I'm, I'm doing these things, Pastor, I'm doing these things, we're going to have a talk about if then instead of because therefore, right? Because what that's going to mean is that all you heard or saw was a to-do list instead of what God is going through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, begin to work out as a byproduct of His grace for you in your life for the good of the church and for His glory. So last week we went to Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, we saw Paul starts out and he says, is, is there any love? Is there any fellowship? Is there any benefit to being in Christ? And all of us said with every single one of those things, yes, 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 and amen. And so I want you to see that even Paul here, when he's getting ready to list out, so then he says, let my joy be complete that you would do these things. But he's not saying if you do these things, 
than this. He's saying, because you have experienced X, Y, and Z from God through the gospel, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, these should be the outworking. So Paul's saying, my joy is going to be complete when I see that that's happening. Why? Because I will know that you have not been hearers only of the word of God. You are doers of the word of God. You could not be doers of the word of God in purity and in truth unless the word of God was living in you, which meant you received it, which means you believe, which means you are the true children of God, right? And therefore members of the church. So we look at at who God is and what he has done because of that reality. Therefore, so hear that, because, therefore, let our lives continually look like this. Paul always, always, always speaks of what we therefore ought to be and do in light of who God is and what he has done every single time. The problem is we don't preach expositionally through the Bible as a whole here in America. And so we just skip to the parts that make our point for us when we're preaching. And so if we really want some people to do some specific stuff, we'll skip right over the gospel part of Paul's letter into the do, 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 do. And all we get out of Paul's letters in those contexts is law. And so we start trying to do so that we can be instead of being reminded that who we are is what determines what we will do. Amen? All right, here we go. So Paul didn't say, consider the interests of others as better than your own, except when, fill in the blank, it's convenient for you, which would totally go against everything. That, like I tried to list some stuff out, and I was like, it doesn't even make sense. Because he says, consider the interests of others better than your own. So if you put any clause in there, it totally nullifies the whole statement, right? So um, typically when we talk about submitting ourselves to the church, we narrow it down to the big three. Time, talent, treasure. So usually when a church is going to have this discussion that we're going to have today, they narrow it down to the big three, TTT, time, talent, treasure. These are how you submit to your church. This is how you love your church well. Give them your time. Give them your talent. Give them your treasure. Um, while it is certainly, again, not less than that, it is much, much more. And we also sometimes narrow it down. So, you know, you do the, you do the three T's in the spring, and then in the winter you come back and you do the other three, give, serve, and lead, Right? which at the end of the day, you're still preaching the same message, but you're just using different language because if you use the three T's again, everyone's going to go, wow, it's the same message from the spring, right? Again, it's, it's not less than giving and serving and leading, but it is, again, much more. And even the list that we're going to do today, which is going to have eight things, is not necessarily comprehensive, but here are eight ways that are a little deeper than time, talent, treasure, and give, serve, lead. Um, they're a little bit deeper and a little more practical, uh, but perhaps, again, not comprehensive. All right, so here we go. I didn't even want to write these down, but because there's eight of them, I felt it might help, all right, practically for, because I pray to God by the Holy Spirit, you actually learn something when you sit in these chairs, okay? So number one is physically. So the first way we can submit to and love our church well is by submitting to it physically. Excuse me, I publicly, my bad. Spoiler alert, number two is physically, all right? So number one is publicly, 
So the first way we can submit to and love our church well is publicly. Now, before we get deep into this, remember this. Christ publicly paid the price for our sin and identified himself with us. Why did Christ die on the cross? For the church. For the church. For the family of God. Secondly, and I'm just going to do it this way. So, first of all, publicly. Second of all, physically. And when I say physically, we could also throw in there geographically. Not sure I spelled that right. Number three, so let's talk about physically. Jesus physically and geographically showed up in the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And hear me, what the ascension, the reason the ascension of Jesus Christ is so important to our theology is because what we see in the, in the ascension is that Christ maintained his human and bodily form. Christ, Jesus, God, up until incarnation, not limited by a human body. But when he came down and he condescended and he took on human form for our benefit, he did it for all time. And if you don't understand why I'm making a big deal out of that, just chew on that for a while. Think about it. It may take some years, but eventually it's going to sink in and the depths that Jesus went to for us will become very, very real. Uh, so Jesus physically submitted himself to us and showed us his love. Socially is number three. Simply, the church should not simply be a social club, but it shouldn't be less than that. It shouldn't be less than that. And socially, what we know, what we see when we talk about in a social setting, we're talking about hospitality. We're talking about fellowship. And have we not received hospitality and fellowship from God through Christ? We absolutely have. Number four is affectionately. Affectionately, Christ came in a specific attitude and posture to serve, to love. And let us not be deceived. When he comes back, he's coming in a different posture to judge. Part of why the gospel message is so important. Part of why it's important for us to uh, not forget the wrath of God. To not forget the law. When we preach gospel, the gospel is two words. It's law and grace. And you do not have the gospel without law. And you certainly don't have it without grace. Because the law is what informs what you need the grace for. And so we must teach both law and grace. Number five is financially. And you're like, I knew they just wanted our money. <laughs> but think about this. Jesus, how much did Jesus give? To the church. He gave everything. Absolutely everything. God gave his one and only son. For the sake of his family. 
Uh, six is vocationally. Think about it this way. Christ's life work. His life's work was for the good of the church and the glory of God. Uh, seven is ethically. Well, how do you think about Christ in, ethically, in an ethics way? Well, Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law. He did not abolish the law, which means what? The ceremonial law is done, complete, finished. But the moral law of God, what? Continues. So are we still bound by the moral law? Yes and amen. Do we have to abide by the ceremonial law? No. Okay? So even ethically, we can look to Christ. And then lastly, number eight, I'll just put over here, is spiritually. Okay? And so think about it this way. Father, Son, and Spirit exist in continual, eternal submission and unity to each other spiritually. All right, so let's break it down. First, publicly. So how do we submit to the church publicly? The first and foremost, this is needed. This very thing, okay, publicly, this is first and foremost because of the need for membership. Uh, that those who are called to lead as elders would have a way in which they would know who it is they're meant to be leading. And so we cannot have that if there is not a public demonstration of who is in submission to the church, right? 11 o'clock. Um, and so we need to know as elders who exactly it is that God has brought into our care. So to say that the first way that we submit to the local churches publicly means that there should be a formal and official joining to the church by committing to the local body of believers where someone will regularly receive the Lord's Supper and Communion. What are the three first marks of a true church? Where the word is rightly preached, where the sacraments are rightly administered, and where church dis discipline is walked out. So when you are submitting to a church, one of the first things you're actually submitting to, if you are already a believer, is saying, this is where I am going to receive communion on a regular basis. I wonder if that's at the top of most Americans' list when they think about what church they're going to go to. Well, I, I need to know where I'm going to take communion. And yet, that is one of the most important things. For an unbeliever who becomes a believer, this is culminated in what? Baptism. And so baptism is meant not simply to be a public profession of faith for an individual. It is meant to be an induction for an unbeliever into the church of God. As a member. And so someone should not be being baptized unless they are being baptized into the church membership. And so those are some of the things that we talk about with people when we baptize them. Jesus publicly identified himself by suffering and dying a public death to redeem God's elect, his church. And we should also publicly identify with him 
and his people by being baptized, joining a local church, and receiving communion with the body regularly. Remember last week we said baptism is getting your passport for the first time, and communion is like weekly getting that passport stamped and authorized and saying, you are a true member of this kingdom, okay? Um, And so that's why we say that Communion is for believers. Why? Because as believers get up and come to the table, we can affirm who is, who are the true members, who are supposed to be the true members of the church. If someone who we believe to be a member doesn't get up and come and take communion, that is a red flag for an elder to say, there's something we need to talk about there. There must be something going on. Now, are there ever times when a member, a true member of the church should not take communion? Yes, Bible says that if you have ought against your brother, to go and sort that out first before you take communion. So there may be that someone in the church is walking through something with a brother that they might need some counsel and some help on. And so as elders, we need to be looking for who is taking communion and who's not. Because sometimes, even though you should have got a hold of us to begin with, sometimes you don't. But by withholding yourself from communion, that should be an indication to us that we need to have a discussion there. Or maybe this person is experiencing some doubt about whether or not they're really a believer. And so we need to have a discussion there. We need to be able to talk through that. And so again, it's an indication. It's like a warning light on your indicators in your car, right? Something's wrong. Something's up. We need to have a conversation. Or it's like, oh, I didn't know them. They're not coming forward. They may not be a believer. Again, a discussion can be had. What kind of a discussion can be had there? Evangelism. Praise God. Second, physically. Secondly, we should submit physically to the church. We could also say, in a sense, like I said, geographically. So I'm going to break this down for you. I want you to notice that I keep emphasizing local church. Local church. When we look at the church in Acts 2, 42 through 47, we're looking at a specific local expression of the body of Christ in a specific local context. And what do we see? We see them eating together in their homes, sharing and caring for one another's needs. Here is just the simple truth reality. It is going to be very difficult for you to submit to your local church and to love her well if you don't live near anyone else in your church. It's a reality. Is it impossible? No. Is it going to be very difficult? Yes. That is simply a reality. Um, We've got some people, Josh and Jackie are here this morning, that live far, far away. (laughs) Right? And the simple reality is it is going to be more difficult for them to engage in the ongoing life of the church on a regular basis. That's reality. Is it impossible? No. It's going to take much more effort on their part. That is a reality. Um, It's going to be difficult for people who live far away to look to the interests of others, specifically in the body of their church that they're a member of which is a command of believers. And if we do not live in the same geographical area, so it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's going to be difficult to be faithful to what the Bible is calling us to do. 
okay? The primary way that we submit to each other physically is by simply being present. Being present. When we gather corporately, when your missional community gathers, when your group that you're walking through discipleship gathers, the primary way you can submit to each other and love each other well is simply by being present. What happens if your nose decides not to show up for a day? All those with allergies know what that's like. It sucks, right? You may not think about your nose in a given day, but the day you don't have access to it, you know it, right? And when you're not present, you are missed. You may think, but I don't do anything. I just sit here. You do not know what your presence does for your brothers and sisters that sit around you. You do not know how someone has faithfully watched the way that you worship and simply by watching you worship have been discipled by you in how to worship. You don't know how your faithful presence in what you do or do not do simply by being present has shaped someone's idea of what it means to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. So it's important to be present, even if you're not doing something, right? Did your baseball coach let you miss the game if you already knew you were going to ride the bench? It's like, coach, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to play this game. I'm just, I'm not going to show up. Is that all right? No. Why? Because if you don't show up, you're never playing in this game, right? Like, it's not going to happen. And what happens if you're needed? Right? And, and what about who's, who's lifting up the team? I'm speaking from experience because that's all I did was ride the bench when I played baseball. I never got to miss a game. All right. Hebrews chapter 10 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so we gather in a few different ways. We gather corporately. And so does this, uh, does, is this relevant to the corporate gathering? Yes and amen, 100%. Is it just about the corporate gathering? No. What about your missional community? The same principle is in place. When you are not there, you are missed and you need to be present. Why? Not for your own good, for the good of the people around you. Why? Because every single time our good works are not about us and they're not about God. They're about the people around us. And this is how you can love your church well. This is how you can submit to your church. And when I say submit to your church, I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about Brian. I'm not talking about Daniel. I'm talking about the people who are sitting in the chairs next to you who come and are a part of your body, the church. As we gather on the Lord's Day on Sunday, even the day we gather corporately is a reminder of the gospel because every time we gather, we should remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But let's take it to the next level. If you can, I would say this as, as one of your elders and pastor. You should consider the church body physically and geographically, if you can, when deciding where to live. If it's a possibility. We do well to consider the same questions unbelievers do when considering where, where to live. Things like budget, things like schools come to mind if you are putting your kids in school or you're homeschooling, whatever. What kind of neighborhood? 
But even unbelievers think about those things when they think about where they're going to live. So should we not, as believers, be considering some other things? Yes. And what questions should we be asking? Perhaps, will how much I'm planning to pay for this house allow for generosity to the church and to others that God brings across my path? Will it give, will, will where I live give others, other church members, access to me for discipleship and for hospitality? Another question, will I be able to be a part of other members' daily rhythms and will they be able to be a part of mine? If you do not live in a geographically close context, those things are going to be hard to live out practically. That's just a reality, okay? Practically, this means submitting to each other when presented with opportunities to move homes, jobs, locations, because it means there could be times that God may call us, hear me, to consider the good of the church over our own good so that we can love the church well. These questions are not easy questions to answer alone, and you should not be considering them alone. Now, just because I said this, don't feel like you can never move, you can't go anywhere, I just can't do it. No, I'm saying when the opportunities for those decisions arise, let's have a conversation about those things and pray through those things together for the good of the church. So are we saying you should never take a promotion or move to a nicer home or location? No, that is absolutely not what we're saying. But in making those decisions, before the decision has been made, whether that's publicly with your mouth or simply in your mind, let's talk about it. You can submit to your missional community. You can bring it up in your missional community and say, God's, if I feel like God's opened the door. I have this opportunity in front of me. I, I'm not really sure if it's God or not, but, but I have an opportunity to do this. Will you guys pray with me through this? And hopefully we walk through the who you are is what determines what you do together, right? So, so this, this decision that you have to make, let's, let's talk about who you are and let's talk about what decision that makes. You can submit it to your discipleship group. If you're meeting with two or three other people of the same gender on a weekly basis for prayer and Bible study and discipleship, you can bring it up with them. Hopefully those people are going to know you better than anyone else over the course of time, and, and, and they're really going to be able to speak into who you really are and why you might be making this decision, right? Um, and even, believe it or not, you can talk to your elders about it, right? We'll make time for you to talk through decisions like this, to consider and pray through what a move or promotion or job change looks like for you and your family and for the church. Now, does a Christian have to, capital letters, have to move or live closer to the church and others in it? No, it is not a biblical mandate. However, it is a way to definitely love your church well by living in close context and proximity to where the church is. Uh, why are we meeting in Helotus, Texas? Because I live three minutes away. I'm not joking. When we first started praying through Planting Redemption Hill, we fully thought we were going towards downtown or the Alamo Heights area. 
You know what happened? You know what stopped that? We couldn't move down there. And we knew that God wasn't calling us to plant a church in a location that he hadn't called us to live in. And so we said, since we cannot move, let's dial back and let's plant where we are because that's where God has placed us and allowed us to be. We would love to plant a church in that location. If that ever happens, if God allows it, it's going to require some people to live there because we cannot be doing ministry out in a context that we are not living in, okay? Again, did Jesus submit himself physically and geographically for our good? Yes. He left heaven. He came to earth, and he did not consider equality to God something to be attained, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Let's roll. Socially. Third, we should submit ourselves to the church socially. Have you ever heard the adage? Paul actually talks about it. It's cliche, but it's true. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Right? One bad fruit ruins the whole bushel. So my grandpa said, right? Get those rotten apples out of there. It goes both ways, though. And in the church, it should be more the other way than that way. And Paul's not talking about keeping people out of the church. He's talking about people who are in the church who are going out and living like they're not members of the church. A church should be more than a social club, but it, should be, it, should be, it shouldn't be less. And we imitate the people we call our friends. We will spend money where they do, and on the things that they spend money on, we will raise our kids the way that they do. We will pray the way that they do. We are likely to imitate the same kinds of faith that they have. And so this is not to say we're looking for uniformity, but it's acknowledging that we do have a natural bent towards homogenous relationships. Now, while we should fight against allowing ourselves to go completely homogenous, there are some actual side benefits to that bent in us. That if we can just get around some solid believers in our lives, that that is going to lift us up in our faith. It means we should want to be around people who are good stewards of their finances. We should want to be around people who raise their kids to love and obey Jesus, who pray with faith and belief and believe in a true gospel because being around those kinds of people will encourage us in those things without demanding uniformity in how we walk those things out. So we celebrate unity in things that matter and diversity in our culture, in our context. We submit to each other socially to be shaped and formed together under the same teaching of the word together by joining together with the local church. And we are protected against uniformity because we are joining ourselves to a body that Jesus is building and that is not one of our own making. Unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. And if we labor on our own, we're all going to look like and sound like and act like each other all the time. But if we allow God to build his church, he is going to build something beautiful. And that means there's going to be diversity. Amen? Fourthly, affectionately. So we went from public to physical. So there has to be this public affirmation and submission to the church. It's a, it's a physical thing. 
It's also a social thing. But now we get to affection, which means we've just gone from social to affection. We've gone to a deeper level. We're continuing to go deeper into the lake, if you will. And, and so what is friendship without affection? Well, if you, want a, if you want a good kind of idea of what that would look like, you need to read or go watch The Giver, right? Emotions removed. They have, they have connections. They don't have relationships. And, and so being a member of the church, it would be ridiculous to say that you are going to submit to the church publicly, physically, and socially, but withhold your affections from her. And yet, this happens all the time. All the time. People will be baptized. They'll take communion on a regular basis. They'll even live in and around the church and show up to some stuff. But when it comes to the affections of their heart, they withhold them from the church. We should be submitting our affections to one another. And this means what? To celebrate with those who are celebrating. To mourn with those who are mourning. In what we read in 1 Corinthians 12 today, it said that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So let's get practical again, shall we? The New Testament commands us to rejoice with the brother who gets the big job promotion and all the money and the prestige that goes with it when we have lost our job or are struggling to get one. Right? That's what the New Testament is commanding of us. That's what it means to submit your affections. That even if you have lost your job or are struggling to get one, but a brother in the church gets his job and it's like everything he ever dreamed of, we're still called to celebrate with him and not just in lip service, but truly with the affections of our heart. Can we do it? The Bible commands the 30-year-old single woman who longs for marriage to rejoice with the 22-year-old fresh out of college girl that just married the man of her dreams. Can she? It's what the New Testament commands of us. Can the poor man mourn with the rich man when the rich man loses his job? I mean, the, the reality is the natural bent of our hearts is what? I don't have my job, you get a job. There's a little part of me that's, that's dying on the inside. I'm longing for marriage, you get married. There's a, there's a little part of me that's dying on the inside. I don't have much, you have everything, you start to lose some. I get a little joy out of that and that's sick and it's twisted and it's me. And it's you. And that's why we need Jesus. Not just once. Sometime when we pray a prayer, go forward, but every single day. Amen? So to answer in the affirmative, yes, we can love and submit our affections to each other that way, requires more than brute resolve. Hear me. Again, this is not to-do list. This is not proving yourself to be a member. This is how Christ works out these things in you. And so when these things happen, and there is a little bit of yourself that dies on the inside, there is a little bit of yourself that gets a little joy when they get what's coming to them, you think. That's when we've got to get down on our knees and say, Jesus, I, 
I can't, I can't, I cannot. I need you to. I need you to. That's being a Christian, folks. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've crucified myself with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I, Jesus, I can't, but I know you can. Use this vessel, Lord. Amen? All right, let's go there. Financially, number five, one way that you can love your church well is by submitting to her and loving her well financially. What the heck are we talking about? I knew they just wanted our money. No, that's not all we want. <laughs> right? Here's the deal. As Christians, we should submit ourselves to our local church financially. What does that look like? It means we should look for opportunities to fulfill biblical commands like these. Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We should share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice home hospitality with each other. Commands like these, Galatians 2.10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Commands like these, 1 John 3.17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Commands like these. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money keeping in keeping with your income. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, this is New Testament, folks, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so according to your income, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, I don't have to come and ask you to figure it out and to get it together, but you've You've already done it and are bringing it together. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Um, Romans 15, 26 to 27. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in the spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings as well. Uh, before we get to the next part, uh, last week... Our church had an opportunity to love someone who was in need. And uh, there were, over the course of this last week, hundreds of dollars that were given. Um, not thousands, but hundreds of dollars that were given to help a couple in need. We could not have done that if you weren't giving. So you hear some of these verses, well, that's talking about the poor, pastor. Yes, it is. And how should you be giving to the poor? through the church. Why? Let me show you the protection that it gives you. As you allow the church to operate in a very hospitable, generous, and benevolent way, it protects you from becoming somebody's provider. And there are needy, needy people in this world that if you will allow them to will try to, not even intentionally necessarily, suck you dry. And so what this does is it allows you to give to people who are in need anonymously. Maybe the church doesn't have 
the refunds or resources available to give to a person in need, but you do, and you can give to them through the church. You know the need. You know the person. You can say to the church, here, I have this. They have a need. I want, you, I want to give it to you so that you can give it to them so that they can be blessed, and they don't even have to know that it came from me. How beautiful is that? Right? Why, why would you be able to do that? Because you know who you are. You're a child of God. Your reward is stored up in heaven. So what do you do? You can give without needing anything in return, not even a thank you. Not even a, not even a surprised look. Not even a, how do you do? How beautiful is that? But why do we feel the necessity to give ourselves outside of the church? Because we like the pat on the back. We like the surprised look. We like the, the reciprocal thanks that we get when we do that. Now, am I saying you should never, ever give to someone by yourself? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is some people have used these verses out of context to say, I don't have to give to the church. I can do all the giving myself. And that would be unfaithful to Scripture. Commands like these. I'm a little biased about these ones, and I'll try not to show my, my bias. Um, 1 Corinthians 9.14, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Hello. I like the sound of that. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Um, let the one who is taught, Jesus said, share, oh, excuse me, not Jesus, Paul says, let the one who is taught the word Share all good things with the one who teaches. And he's not talking about, that was a good word, brother. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Matthew 10 and Luke 10. Jesus now speaking. There are some very serious warnings that he gives in Matthew 10 and Luke 10. Uh, Jesus saying that it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of days than for those who do not take care of those who taught and preached the gospel to them. So let's just think about that in our context of America today. Let's think about how, um, excuse me, um, I've got to broaden my vocabulary here. Think about how uh, riled up we are right now about um, the sanctity of marriage in the church in America today. Let's think about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus himself says it will be better for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of days than for those who were taught and preached the gospel and did not take care of the ones who taught them and preached the gospel to them. Powerful. We do not submit to the church financially to get anything from God or the church. You, you want us to talk about finances at Redemption Hill? Let me talk about finances. There is no guarantee from Scripture that if you give money, you're going to get money. None. There's no guarantee that if you sow a seed of faith, brother, that all your needs financially are going to be met miraculously. But let me tell you how your needs might be met. If 
by the people that you're living in submission to in this place right here, right now. I shared with you how we were able to take care of someone this last week. Not members of the church. That was purely outside giving, just trying to help the poor. But there came a point where in the week it was, I'm sorry, it's all we can do. Why? Why would we do that? Because we have a body of members to take care of. And the hope would be that as needs arise in the church, that if there's a need that arises, that we might be able to help in those needs with our body. And we are called, believe it or not, can we just go here real quick? Because it's annoying the crud out of me. This is like in public media and everything right now. It was on The View not long ago. People talking about Christianity, all right? I do not watch The View. I heard a, a sound bite, all right? Um, and people want to take... And they will know you are Christians by your love. Does it end there? They will know us by our love for what? For one another. And constantly through the New Testament, Paul specifically says that the love and the generosity and the giving and everything that we have is first and foremost for the church. So we need to take care of home before we take care of outside the home. Amen? So we do not submit to the church financially to get anything from God or from the church or because we agree with 100% of the financial decisions or how the money is handled or talked about. We do it because that is what it looks like to be obedient to Christ and to Scripture and because we love the church. Remember, we got to submit our affections. we got to submit our affections. And if you don't give because you love the church, meaning its people, both members and its elders, then there are some serious gospel issues we need to walk through together. Number six, vocationally, this one's tough. If the other ones haven't pushed your buttons, maybe this one will. I'm trying to do that a little bit today. It's for your good. Christians should submit their vocations to their churches. For some people, this may mean submitting to a calling by God to vocational ministry. Barnabas and Paul, two awesome guys. How, how, how incredible do you think it would have been to be in the church where Paul and Barnabas are both members of that church? I mean, you guys know who Paul and Barnabas are, right? I'm, I'm seeing some blank faces here. Paul and Barnabas, yes? They, they were, before they were missionaries, they were members of a local church. How awesome would it have been to have them in their church? And yet... What happens in the book of Acts? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit separated Paul and Barnabas and the church recognized it and sent them out into full-time ministry. And they rejoiced. Now, how sad would you have been to see them go? Super sad, right? But here's what we're praying for. We want to be a church that plants churches, that is involved in ministry globally, that does these things. And what that means... I believe and I pray for and I'm looking for the day when we will send people out to go and do those things. But what does that mean? It means we got to be able to let them go. It means that there might be some people who have some really good jobs, who have opportunities to have even better jobs, but because of the calling of God on their lives that has been 
affirmed by the elders and the outworking of God through their submission to their local church that we could with full affirmation and support say, this is absolutely what God's called you to. Yes, you could go climb the, the, the corporate ladder and make way more money, but God is 100% calling you to go and do this. And that means we lose you, but we love you, and we know it's for the good of the local church in that context, and it will be good for us in this context as well because it's faithful to what God has called us to do to be because of who we are. Amen? Like John and Shannon. And so that's a good thing. For others, it might mean passing up on that promotion that allows them to carry on and climb the corporate ladder because it would keep them away from serving their local church even if it means they live in the same place. And there may be times that God calls members of the church to look an opportunity in the eye and let it go for his glory and for the good of their church. For everyone, this means acknowledging that the relationships that we are building in the church will last forever, but our jobs will not. They won't. You put in your... 40 years of work, and even if it's in the same company all those 40 years, at some point, you are either going to die or retire. And when you do, I give it five to ten years, not going to be a lot of people remember your name. Someone's going to move into your cubicle, they're going to take up your space, And they're going to carry on where you left off. Now, is there no, is there nothing for the glory of God in our work? There absolutely is. There's a whole theology of vocation. It's a beautiful thing. All that we do, we do for the glory of God. But what I am saying is, your relationship with the members of the church are going to last forever. They are eternal. This isn't just here and now. It's forever. And your job is not. There are those in submission to their local churches in efforts to serve and love their church well that have turned down promotions and more money, moved from larger, more reputable firms and organizations to smaller ones, refused to move to new cities, and in each case, they are turning down the opportunity because they knew who they were, and as a result of who they were and who they were called to be in their local church, that what they could, what they could do and what they could not do. They knew it would hinder their ability to care for the church and the family of the church. There are others who have refused to work on Sundays or have quit jobs when required to do so because that is when the church gathers. Some of the best non-staff leaders and elders will be those for the sake of the church will be, move, be willing to move down rather than up the professional ladder. Now again, like when we talked about where you live, is this a biblical mandate? No, it's not. And it's not for every believer, but this is an area where you can biblically live out your mandate to love and serve the church well. And to ignore these things would be unloving. To consider them is absolutely loving. Again, involve your missional community, your discipleship group, call the elders. These types of decisions should receive the full benefit and blessing of what it means to be a covenant member of the body of Christ locally. Which means what? You have people in your corner. And, and we're committed not to sit there and just go, 
well, that, that would really suck for us. That, that would be really bad for us. I, I didn't want to see John and Shannon move to Chicago. Christina moved to Arizona. But do you know we were able to come around them and pray with them through those decisions? And, and it was right. It was right. And so what happened? They, they left. And what? The church of God is better in Chicago and Arizona as a result of it. And we will be too. It just still hurts. Right? But God is good. And there may be times where God does put an opportunity in your way. He does give you an opportunity to step up the ladder, to, to achieve something in the workplace for the good of the local church and for his glory. And, and we might stand beside you and go, you know what? I don't really see how it's going to work out right now, but through praying through this, we know who you are. And because of what God's done and who he is, and, and this, you need to go for it. So again, don't, don't hear me up here like saying, you can't do anything. I'm not, I'm not looking to run your life. I don't want to run your life. I'll tell you what I do want to do. I want to put on a towel. I want to serve you. And one of the ways that I can serve you is, is make sure that you don't have to walk through those kind of life decisions by yourself. We can pray with you. We can walk through that with you. We can talk about those things. And in all of this, we need to remember that all of life is mission. Daniel, why don't you come up? we got to get going. Uh, it may be through prayer and consideration, it seems best for the church and the glory of God that you do take whatever promotion. But let us not forget that we are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And I do believe that there is a propensity in us, especially in Western Christianity, where we see the carrot dangling at the end of the stick and we think it's God, and sometimes it's not. If it is all rainbows and lollipops, then it is at, we, at least worth considering that it might not be everything that we think it is. All right? Remember, the wicked prosper too, and it rains on the just and the unjust. So do not take those decisions lightly. Ethically, Christians should look to the church for ethical instruction, counsel, and accountability and discipline in matters that are addressed by God's word. This is not a circumventing of governing authorities as the local church through the New Testament. By the authority of scripture, we are called to submit to our governing authorities and magistrates. We are called to even believe that God himself has appointed them for our good. No matter what their name is or what party they're associated with. Now this does not call for fatalism. Okay? This is not a... As Christians, we're not fatalists. We're, well, whatever will be, will be, case sera, sera. I better not engage in the process then. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, cast the lots but trust that God's the one who determines the outcome. That's not, that is not a thing that says go gambling, okay? I'm also not saying don't go gambling, okay? Your life should not be consumed by it, all right? Probably not a good habit to get into. Gambling has nothing to do with it, is what I'm saying. What I am saying is that God's in control. We're called to trust Him, engage but trust him, okay? 
In matters of sin, we are called to seek to help other believers fight against their sin and open ourselves up for the same help and discipline. Uh, Galatians 6 says, If anyone's caught in transgression, those who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but to keep watch on themselves, lest they too are tempted. Jude says that we should snatch each other up out of the fire. That means that we should care about where each other are at spiritually and ethically in our lives. And then we're called to submit spiritually. Last but not least, number eight, how do we do this? There are three specific ways I'd ask you if you're going to consider being members of Redemption Hill to submit to Redemption Hill spiritually. Number one, let this local church, Redemption Hill, be the primary place where you seek to exercise your own spiritual gifts. Let this be the primary place where you seek to exercise your spiritual gifts. Number two, let this community be the primary place where you seek to build others up and be built up. And number three, let this be the primary place that you regularly gather with and intercede with the body of Christ in prayer. Simply that. So eight very practical, very biblical ways for us to submit to the local church. And really when we say submit, what do we mean? This is how we love the church well. It's certainly not less than time, talent, and treasure, give, serve, and lead, but it is much, much more and much, much deeper. And these are not things for us to do Yes, we will do them, but they are things as we believe more fully who God is and what he has done for us in making us his redeemed children. They are the things that God, through the work of Christ on our behalf and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, will work out and conform in us in these things. If you're struggling in one of these areas, you're like, damn it. That really hit me. Talk to somebody about it. You know, Mike said this on Sunday, and man, I just don't know that I'm there yet. Don't run away because you're not there yet. Let's talk about that. Let's repent in those things together. And it may take some time for God to work those things out in you, but let's trust Him to do that. And let's be committed to serving and loving each other well. Let's stand together. And re-up our membership through communion. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, for your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.